Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, everyone. I'm Marianne Peters, the CEO of the Carter Center, and it's my privilege to introduce tonight's event in the Conversations at the Carter Center series, our eighth annual Chinatown Hall, entitled Local Connections, National Reflections. I want to welcome all of you present here at the Carter Center, as well as the many people participating at 74 other locations, 73 in the United States, and one in Hong Kong at a later date. And a special welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, our partner in tonight's conversation. Since its founding in 1966, the National Committee has been one of the leading organizations in building positive relations between the U.S. and the People's Republic of China, facilitating constructive dialogue and encouraging the exchange of American and Chinese ideas and culture. Of course, the U.S.-China relationship is one of great significance to President Carter as well. Uh, as you all know, he played a unique role in laying the foundation for the current relationship by normalizing diplomatic relations 35 years ago. The Carter Center is dedicated to cultivating this legacy. Our China program, led by Dr. Yahweh Lu, works to build synergy between China and the United States on issues of global importance, to encourage relevant scholarship, and to nurture the next generation of future leaders who will take the relationship forward into the future. Now, before we get started, I would like to remind you to please silence your cell phones, and I'm afraid photos are not allowed. To moderate this evening's discussion, we are honored to have with us Stephen Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations since 2005. Mr. Orleans has had a distinguished career in East Asian affairs, including as managing director of the Carlyle Group in Asia and as president of Lehman Brothers Asia. In fact, Steve was working at the State Department when President Carter decided to establish diplomatic relations with China in December of 1978. And although he needs no introduction, it's now my great honor to introduce the Nobel Peace Laureate and author of 28 books, the 39th President of the U.S., Jimmy Carter. Steve? I want to thank Ambassador Peters and the Carter Center for hosting tonight's event. I want to say good evening to those in the eastern and central states Good afternoon to those in the mountain states and on the West Coast. As Ambassador Peters just said, I'm Steve Orleans. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm pleased to welcome audiences from 74 venues throughout the United States to our eighth annual China Town Hall Local Connections National Reflections. We created China Town Hall in the belief that U.S.-China relations are the defining relationship of the 21st century, and that getting that relationship right is the key to peace and stability throughout the world. On the 35th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations, we could have no one, no one better than the man who presided 
over that historic event, the 39th President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Thank you very much. Steve. In 1978, when I was a young lawyer, a very young lawyer, <laughs> in the State Department, working on the legal framework of diplomatic relations, I saw firsthand what true world leadership means. Opposition to the normalization of relations was intense on the US side, from some in the Congress, from lobbyists, from members of the public. There was also great debate at the highest levels in China. President Carter and Deng Xiaoping acted despite the resistance in each country. And the result has been 35 years of peace, stability, and economic growth on both sides of the Pacific. I thank you for your vision and courage at that difficult time. And I also thank you for giving me the opportunity to participate in this historic endeavor and launching what has been a wonderful 35-year adventure working in the US-China relationship. Before turning the floor over to President Carter, I'd like to thank our partners at all 74 venues and our small but very dedicated National Committee staff, which has done a magnificent job in coordinating this complex nationwide event. Let me also thank our speakers, a veritable who's who of China experts in America. They have traveled throughout the country to talk with you because they believe, as we do, that educating Americans about China will help fashion policies that are in the long-term interests of the United States. In addition, we thank the Star Foundation for funding this exciting program. Last, I thank President Carter for joining us today. It is an honor that I would have never dreamed of 35 years ago to interview my first boss, <laughs> our 39th president, just two weeks after his 90th birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Thank you very much, Steve. We are now accepting questions submitted via Twitter using the hashtag CTH2014. That's C as in China, T as in town, H as in hall, 2014, 2014. We will get to as many questions as we can. And I apologize in advance to those whose questions we won't have time to answer. Let me now turn the floor, floor over to President Carter for a few opening remarks, and then we'll get to the questions. Thank you, Steve, very much. Well, I'm delighted to be part of this forum as well, this town hall meeting. I became interested in China for the first time, you won't believe it, when I was six years old. My favorite uncle was in the US Navy then and served along the China coast, and he sent me a lot of mementos and letters back from China, so I became quite interested in it. As a matter of fact, my uncle was captured by the Japanese the second day of the, of the war after the, uh, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The next day, they took Guam, and he was one of the sailors on Guam, and he stayed as a prisoner of war until he was rescued at the end of the war. So I became interested in China quite early. 
uh, I watched very carefully after the Second World War was over and during it uh, with Claire Chenault and the Flying Tigers. I had a very close friend there uh, named Jack Crockford who flew 423 sorties for the Flying Tigers during that time. So I was quite interested in the war as I was beginning my career in the Navy. While I was a submarine officer in 1949, I made my first trip to China. Uh, the Chinese Communist forces were approaching the coast, the Nationalist Chinese under, under uh, uh, General Chiang uh, Kai-shek was just occupying the, the coastal area. I went into Hong Kong, I went into uh, Shanghai, and then I went to Qing, then Tsingtao, but now Qingdao, uh, and stayed there for two or three weeks operating in the ocean uh, outside uh, those ports with uh, American allies. And then uh, I left uh, China, and a few months later, uh, the People's Republic of China was born when Chiang Kai-shek left there and went to Taiwan. As a matter of fact, the People's Republic of China was born on my 25th birthday, October the 1st, 1979. And I've been interested in China, obviously, ever since then. I was very, uh, 1949, I was very interested in I was very interested in seeing... It looked uh, like it was 79. Well, it does seem like it, yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about 79. Anyway, uh, I was very interested also in when Richard Nixon went to China in 1972, and he and, and the Chinese officials uh, declared that there was only one China. I was disappointed that they didn't say which one. And then for the next six years, as you all know, the United States continued to have diplomatic relations only with Taiwan. And I saw in my own career in the Navy for 12 years, the devastating wars that took place in that area of the world. Not only the Second World War, but then, of course, the Korean War and then the Vietnamese War, in which my oldest son uh, was a participant. And then, so when I got to be president, I thought that it was a very good opportunity for us to sign an agreement with China to recognize them as the mainland China uh, as representing the Chinese people, and I hoped that it would have good results. I had a good partner in Deng Xiaoping, who finally prevailed in the power struggle in China. And he and I negotiated secretly from the White House only. We never did send any uh, messages through the State Department because it was uh, full of, it was a sieve, it was full of holes, and it would let go we, out. We leaked terribly, I agree. It, well, okay, <laughs> I, I was wondering if Steve was going to disagree with me. But uh, we wanted to keep it quite secret because the support for Taiwan then was overwhelming in the United States. And as I approached the time of December the 15th when we announced normalized relations from both uh, Beijing and Washington, 60, over 60% 60 of all the uh, members of the Congress were vehemently against normalizing relations with the People's Republic of China or Red China or Mainland China. And when I did finally declare that we were going to normalize relations, I was condemned by Republicans all the way across the spectrum, Barry Goldwater, all the way to George H.W. Bush, condemned that action. But I felt like it was the right thing. And as Steve has already pointed out, since then, since 1979, peace has prevailed in Asia. There hasn't been another war, another armed conflict in Asia, and the, and the whole area has progressed, uh, I'll say culturally and economically as well. So I think the final results of what we did in, uh, on 1st of January 1979 have proven very beneficial. I made a trip to China, a 10-day trip this past, uh, just a few weeks ago, and Steve was there. That happened to be approaching my 90th birthday. It was the 65th 
anniversary of my visiting China for the first time. It was the 65th anniversary of uh, People's Republic of China being formed. It was the 35th anniversary of normalized diplomatic relations and the 110th birthday of Deng Xiaoping. So we had a lot to celebrate <laughs> in addition to the Autumn Festival, and it was a very pleasant and, and wonderful visit for me. I've been to China almost every year uh, since I've been out of uh, White House many, many times, and I've met with, with Xi Jinping now four times, three times even before he was the leader designate of, uh, of China. So I've had a wonderful relationship with China and look forward now with some trepidation to answering the questions that come in from Steve and also from Twitter. So thank you, Steve, for letting me this chance to make an opening remark. The, um, you visited Hong Kong when you were a young naval officer. Yeah, I did. And I see a lot of our questions are from Hong Kong. So let me just run through them and uh, at least the first four that have come in, because I think that's very much in the news today. Um, Eric in Worcester, Mass, says, China's leadership is faced with continued student demonstrations in Hong Kong. What position should the U.S. and the Obama administration take on the issue? What are your recommendations? Uh, from China, actually, Jing and Shenzhen, where, by the way, they get direct Hong Kong TV, so they follow it quite closely, I'm sure. What do you think of the Hong Kong student protests? Um, Evan in San Diego, what effects do you think the Hong Kong protests will have on China's economy? And Jimmy in Philadelphia asks, how would Hong Kong electing their own leadership affect trade with China? So all of those at once. I think well, the, it's the Hong Kong question, I understand. yes. Well, you know, we, we, got, we got a bookload of questions. First so. of all, I think President Obama should observe the sovereignty of uh, China. This shouldn't be questioned. Uh, my understanding when China uh, assumed control over Hong Kong from Great Britain a number of years ago was they, they were going to give uh, the people in Hong Kong substantial freedom and substantial democracy to choose their own leaders. As you know, there has been some progress made in that. And, uh, and now, of course, the big altercation is that there are 1,200 people in Hong Kong that meet together, and they reserve the right, according to the recent statements by China, uh, to approve any nominee who wants to run for the leadership of Hong Kong. And this is what the, the students uh, object to very strongly. I was not surprised to see their objection, and I was not surprised to see the demonstrations. They have been going on now for quite a while. In, in my opinion, uh, China should honor the, the uh, spirit of the commitment to give the Hong Kong people freedom to choose their own leaders. However, knowing China, I would say that China government is not going to back down. And uh, a possible compromise, and I understand now that there might be some talks of, of negotiation between the, the, the demonstrators and the government of Hong Kong, might be to, to look to the future and say that in the future, the 1,200 leaders who will approve the nominees to run for office would have to be elected democratically. I think that would be a, a possible compromise. If I was a negotiator, at least that's what I would put forward. Hmm. So I think it's an intransigent problem. I don't believe China's going to back down. And I think for the United States to in intercede directly with condemnation of China might be counterproductive. I think that's a terrific suggestion and one which I hope they take seriously. From your own experience, by the way, you were kind of the first president who was nominated through a different primary system that existed prior to 76. I was. Is there some kind of parallel to what 
In other words, it's, it's an indirect system rather than a direct system. Now we've moved, it's not truly yeah. universal primary selections, but how different is the old US system, the pre-Jimmy Carter system, from what kind of exists in, in, in uh, Hong Kong today? Well, the changes in the primary system in the Democratic Party, at least, and that was independently uh, done from the Republican Party, it was done by the former governor of North Carolina, and it really democratized the choice of a Democratic nominee. And we knew about those reforms that were instituted in 1974. I ran for president in 1976. So we studied those uh, reform procedures very uh, secretly and very acutely and very thoroughly. And uh, that was when I decided to run for president because I thought I'd have a better chance under a pure democratic system in the Democratic Party itself than I would just from big shots getting to the convention and deciding who the Democratic nominee should be. So we had uh, contested uh, uh, primary elections in more than 30 states out of 50, and I entered all 30 states. Most of my opponents, and there were nine very distinguished opponents that I had, decided not to do that. They thought they could still get to the Democratic convention and negotiate for the uh, nomination. But by the time we got to the convention, uh, I had it sewed up. Uh, they were surprised to find that out, but what my secret was, I might say, which is not part of your question, but a big part of my answer, <laughs> what, what, was that every day during the primary season leading up to the convention, I had seven campaigns going on. I campaigned myself, my wife campaigned by herself, my oldest son and his wife, my middle son and his wife, my youngest son and his wife, my mother and my oldest and my youngest uh, aunt. They all campaigned separately. So we had seven different campaigns going on for me every week for five days. And we would meet together in my house uh, on Saturday afternoon, discuss our problems, discuss what the people wanted to know, make sure we were preaching the same sermon. Monday morning, we were back out again. So by the time my opponents woke up, I had it won. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen in Hong Kong, by the way. <laughs> though though I, th I think the point that you make, and it's, is right, is that we show no tolerance for a system that is quite young, whereas it took us a few hundred years to get there. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's something which I think we, when we look at China, we often need to kind of understand that things don't happen overnight. Well, it took us 12 years even to get a constitution. As you right. know. And of we, course. And we look on some countries that are trying to write a constitution after one year with uh, condemnation. Joshua in Bloomington, we'll move a little north. The establishment of diplomatic relations with China during your presidency was a major victory and historic milestone. However, this also left Taiwan without representation in international bodies such as the United Nations. What solutions can you suggest for preserving Taiwan's robust democracy, especially in light of recent events in Hong Kong that might deter Taiwan from willingly reconciling with the mainland? Well, I was very careful when I was negotiating with, uh, with Deng Xiaoping, and this is a major delaying point. It was a major, uh, I'd say, difference between me and, and, and Deng Xiaoping. I insisted two, for two things. One, that we would honor our treaty commitments to Taiwan, which gave them a one-year notice for any termination of a treaty agreement. And also, I told Deng Xiaoping that we would continue to have full uh, trade and commerce with, uh, with Taiwan, and that we would sell Taiwan defensive weapons only. The other thing that I insisted on was that we would make a public statement that any differences between the mainland and Taiwan in the future would be resolved peacefully. 
And I didn't expect Deng Xiaoping to agree to that last statement, and he didn't. But he did agree not to, co not to contradict it. So that was a sticking point. And it was only after the first day of, uh, after the first of December, just a few days before we made the public announcement, that Deng Xiaoping surprised me pleasantly by agreeing to all of my previous uh, caveats or commitments that he had to, to comply with. So it was a, a harmonious thing. And, and Deng Xiaoping made some statements as well and we didn't dis ever disagree, that Taiwan was part of China. There was only one China. So we had an understanding that we negotiated in secret. Yeah, and just as I said, you kind of acted in the national interest and overcame domestic opposition. I believe Deng did the same yeah. thing, well, that uh, there were people who did not agree to his compromise. That's true. There was no uh, legal opposition to my normalizing relations with, uh, with China because the Constitution of the United States gives the President of the United States sole and unilateral uh, decision about which government we recognize when there's a controversy. So I had the full right, and Congress couldn't veto my decision to normalize diplomatic relations. But then we worked out a very careful, and I think a very mutually convenient, arrangement with, uh, with uh, Taiwan during that next year. And we've continued with massive trade and commerce with uh, Taiwan, and we've had a relatively good relationship both with Taiwan and China. I might add that for a long time there was a hot competition between China and Taiwan about who would have diplomatic relations with individual countries around the world. And I understand that now, since there's been a good relationship between the mainland and Taiwan, that they have agreed not to try to take over the embassies that the other one still has. So that's kind of an agreement that they have worked out independently of the United States. Does, this is from Paul in Virginia. Does it trouble you that, that given our level of commitment to protect Taiwan that, that you made and has been kind of continued, does it trouble you that the Taiwanese have done little to modernize their military forces? Well, as, as you may know, the, I, I complied very uh, assiduously and carefully with the agreement that I made with Deng Xiaoping that we would sell them only defensive weapons. Uh, and that was uh, carried out by Ronald Reagan as well. When George H.W. Bush became president, however, he decided to sell them F-16s, which was kind of an offensive weapon and, and a slight departure from what we had agreed. But the Chinese have accepted that uh, deviation from the agreement that we reached. But, but I, we still have uh, complied with our agreement, and, and China has also continued to say that they will resolve differences with Taiwan in a peaceful way. You think we'll ever see a peace treaty? That's not from any, it's from me. You think we'll ever yeah. see a peace treaty, what you negotiated between Egypt and, and uh, Israel, between, would happen between Taiwan and the mainland? Well, as you know, the, the, the mainland still insists that Taiwan is a part of China and that they are subject to domination by China. But I think in the last few years, with a, a friendly regime elected democratically in Taiwan, they have seen it to be their advantage to get along well with China. So there's a massive... Uh, economic investment by Taiwanese in main, mainland China and, and trade has increased enormously. So at this point at least, there's still a very harmonious relationship between uh, the mainland China, China and also Taiwan. Continue north to Japan. I can see Oscar in Reno, Nevada asks, President Obama announced in April assuring Prime Minister Shinzo Abe that the United States would defend Japan on the dispute over the Senkaku Islands with China. Do you believe the United States should intervene in a territorial dispute beyond our borders amidst the growing crisis we face in the Middle East? To put some 
uh, to, to slightly amend this is President Obama in, when he visited Japan for the first time, an American president said that the Sinkakus are covered under Article 5 of our Mutual Defense Treaty. So I, I assume that's what the questioner is asking. You're using a Japanese name for the islands. There are two different yeah, names. Yeah, Diaoyudao. I used Diaoyudao. The, the, he used Sinkaku. Diaoyudao. Okay. But uh, I've talked to the Chinese leadership about this issue, including Xi Jinping, on, I think, two occasions. And my uh, assurance from him is that the differences between China and Japan will be resolved bilaterally and in a peaceful way. Uh, if there should be a war that broke out between Japan and China, which I think would be a horrible tragedy, the United States is bound by treaty terms to intercede on behalf of, um, of Japan, which would mean, in effect, a second a third world war between the United States and, uh, and China. And, and my dream is, and my hope is, my prayers are, that this will not happen. I don't think it's going to happen. I think both Japan and the United States and China all realize the serious nature of going to war over two little islands that when you fly with an airplane, you can see all the islands at one time, and you can take a picture of the whole thing on one, on one photograph. So it's a very tiny thing. And, and I think in, in late, recent months, both, of, both countries have been cautious about forming uh, any sort of uh, an effort that would bring about a direct military confrontation. Uh, as you know, this altercation had been avoided for decades between China and Japan, both of them claimed, came, claimed sovereignty over the islands, when the mayor of Tokyo decided that he would, in effect, buy the little islands and make it into a resort area for Japanese only. And that precipitated the problem in which the Japanese prime minister had to intercede. And I think that has been the cause of the issue. My hope is that they'll just both continue to claim sovereignty, but neither one will take action to exert their control over the islands to the exclusion of the other. A correct history. This is from a member of the, live, uh, of the audience right here at the Carter Center. Oh, wow. China has already invested a great deal of resources into Africa. Meanwhile, the US exhibits reluctance to do the same. What are China's motivations, and how will a US approach to African countries be affected by Chinese increased Chinese involvement. Well, one of the remarkable things that happened in December of 1978 was we announced on December the 15th that Deng Xiaoping and I would normalize relations on the 1st of January. Three days later, and very closely aligned with that, was Deng Xiaoping's statement on openness and reform, uh, which meant China would open itself much more aggressively to the outside world, which they hadn't done before, and they would reform completely the economic system and even the political system within China. And after that, China began to extend its, its uh, diplomatic relationships to countries all over the earth. The Carter Center has had programs in 80 different countries. And my wife and I have visited more than 145 countries. And everywhere we go now, no matter how tiny the country might be, there's a very strong Chinese presence there. Quite often, it's because China has formed a beneficial trade relationship with them to buy oil or, or minerals of some kind and, and that sort of thing. But uh, even when they don't have that kind of trade relationship, they want to have friendly diplomatic relations with them. I would say for a long time, China had a fairly, uh, I wouldn't say selfish, but a fairly self-beneficial relationship with a lot of those countries. But lately, China has begun to see 
that they need to have good relationship with the people of those countries and not just with the government or the ministers who formed a contract for trade. And, Ch and China has actually asked the Carter Center, since we have programs in 35 different uh, African countries, to help them with the relationship between the government of China and the people of, of the African countries. I think in the future, uh, China, as it becomes more and more established as one of the top leaders economically and, and diplomatically and even militarily in the world, one of the former BRIC, one of the BRIC countries, that China will begin to take a more responsibility to, to see that the world is stable and that wars are prevented and that local altercations that might lead to conflict like going on in North and South uh, Sudan right now should be ironed out. And I think China will become more and more involved in trying to ease tensions and use our diplomatic influence in those countries to preserve and promote peace and stability. Certainly their participation in UN peacekeeping efforts is, is quite significant now. It is. Thousands of Chinese troops. I might add, to, to surprise some of the audience, that there, there are over one million Chinese now who live permanently in Africa. And that trade with, uh, with, uh, with Africa has now exceeded $165 billion a year. So, and it's increasing rapidly, not only the diplomatic relationships that I described earlier. And they, of course, have this enormous effort to help on Ebola. They do. They're, they're deeply committed to humanitarian issues now. Yeah. This is from Columbia, Missouri, Runtian, and I think is particularly appropriate because you lost a night's sleep when Frank Press called you and woke you up to ask, did, say, yeah. Deng Xiaoping asked you to to yeah. send 5,000, um, could be the United States accept 5,000 um, students. So this is, why is there a cap on the H-1B work visa? In 2014, there were 172,000 H-1B applications filed, but the lottery cap only allowed for 85,000 visas. That means that 50% of the international students that should have been hired by Fortune 500 corporations were forced to return to their home countries. Why not double the H-1B work visa cap? Can the U.S. really afford to train and send top international students back to their home countries to compete against the United States? That's a States? long question. I'll give a brief answer, I hope. <laughs> um, well, as you know, after 9-11, there was a tightening up in this country of all aspects of foreigners coming into our country. And this did apply to that particular group to which the questioner referred. But uh, the relationship with China has been different. We have now over 250,000 Chinese students in, in American universities and colleges. And in the last 10 years, we've quadrupled the number of American students also going to China. And this is a matter of great uh, pride in China and also in the United States. This, this was a very serious uh, problem that Deng Xiaoping and I resolved. Uh, as Steve has pointed out, I was waked up in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning, by the way, by my science advisor, whose name is Dr. Frank Press, who was over in China working out another agreement with China concerning uh, science and technology. And uh, people didn't wake me up very much at 3 o'clock in the morning unless it was an urgent uh, crisis. So when I finally woke up and found out that Frank Press was on the phone, I said, Frank, what in the world is wrong with you? I knew what he was. I said, what happened in China? He said, I'm, with, I'm here with Deng Xiaoping, and he wants me to know now from you if he could send 5,000 Chinese students to American universities. And I was quite angry. I, I said, tell him to send 100,000, and I slammed the phone back down. <laughs> 
And within five years, we had 100,000. Now we have two over 250,000. So that's been a great benefit for the United States and China. I think it, it is one of the things, along with tourism back and forth, and also the trade relationships that we have developed, that has, is an insurance policy against the differences that are inevitable between our two countries. And it existed much worse, by the way, before we normalized relations. Uh, to let those differences cause us to get into a contentious element of, uh, of resurrecting uh, the Cold War. We're not going to do that. And I, think the one, I think the most important bilateral relationship in the world is between the United States and China. It's not only brought 35 years of peace and stability uh, in Asia, but it's also imp improved uh, trade and, and commerce and, and the prosperity of Chinese people and America. As you know, with that increased trade and with the economic freedom in China, now 500 million Chinese that were previously in poverty have been brought out of poverty. They still have a long way to go, but they're making good progress. Here's a short one to make up for that long one. <laughs> Andy in Topeka, Kansas. It's beginning to sound like your primary. Xi Jinping has been actively promoting the Chinese dream. President Carter, in your opinion, what is the Chinese dream and what is your <clears throat> dream for China? Well, I've heard uh, Xi Jinping, I've read some of his uh, speeches where he uses that phrase. I think part of it is to uh, cement his uh, relationship with the Chinese public by giving them a, an ideal vision of what China can be in the future. It's just like the American dream and the Chinese dream. It has some negative uh, effects, perhaps, because it tends to promote uh, nationalism, nationalism and, and the belief in China that everything we do is okay and what the rest of the world does is wrong. That may sound very familiar to American citizens because that's what we've done for the last 200 and some years. The American dream is right, and if anybody contradicts it, they are wrong. But, but I think this has precipitated a feeling among Chinese and, and American people that the others can't be uh, trusted. When I was in China on my last visit for 10 days, that I already mentioned, uh, they, we had a poll result I think by Pew, I'm not sure about Pew Foundation, but anyway, only 10% of the Chinese people believe that the United States can be fully trusted, 10%. Mm. And only 25% of Americans now feel that China can be fully trusted. And, and that creates a problem that has to be resolved, I'd say by the actions and the words, public statements of our two leaders. When they get together, and you know, uh, you may know that uh, President Obama will be there in November, and I understand that Xi Jinping is coming to our country in January. But when they come to our countries, they need to make positive statements about the benefits that have already been derived for the last 35 years and how we can stay at peace and understand each other for the next 35 years. Despite the fact we have different uh, objectives, different priorities, we have a different form of government, we have different history, all those things were well understood by me and Deng Xiaoping. In fact, as I said a few minutes ago, the differences that existed between China and the United States when we normalized relations were much greater than anything that's happened since then. And so every president that comes into office has to get to know the benefits that are derived from the normalized relations between our countries. The Asian Studies Department at the University of Vermont asks, how strong is our actual influence on Chinese foreign policy, and how much, is, how much has it changed since you were president in the last 35 years? Well, I think that China always uh, resents uh, any foreign country, including the United States, criticizing their own domestic 
policies on human rights or anything else. But I also think that it probably has some effect uh, on the leadership in China when they feel or hear that respected foreign leaders are critical of some of the things that are being done there. I had a very interesting first confrontation with uh, Deng Xiaoping when he came over uh, to, to visit me in January of 1979. And we were signing all kinds of agreements that had been lagging or non-existent uh, during the previous 30 years. Lawsuits on both sides and, and no, no harmony between us and the so-called communist Chinese. And so we signed almost 100 different agreements over a period of time. And at the banquet that night, Deng Xiaoping said, President Carter, you've done a lot for Chinese. What can I do for you? And he kind of took me aback, and I thought for a few minutes, and I said, well, when I was a child, uh, my heroes in uh, the world were the American missionaries who went to China. And I, when I was a child, I gave five cents a week to help build hospitals and schools for Chinese children. And now you're a communist and atheist regime, and I know you don't permit Bibles to be distributed in China, and you don't permit freedom of worship, and you don't permit missionaries to come. I wish you'd change those policies. He was kind of taken aback by my, by my request. He said, I'll have to let you know later about that. <laughs> so the next day, as a matter of fact, he got me by myself. Only he and I and the interpreters were there. And he said, I've decided to comply with two of your requests. In the near future, at the next meeting of the National People's Congress, we will, give, we will guarantee freedom of worship in China for the first time in 30 years. And we will let Bibles come back into China without restraint. But we will not let American missionaries come back in. <laughs> because they uh, acted as superior to Chinese. Uh, they lived like kings compared to most of our poor people, and they also tried to change the culture of China. So, so they have the so-called three selves. But when Rose and I went over in 1981, freedom of worship, we went to a, a church in, uh, in Shanghai, and they, have to, they had to have five services every Sunday to accommodate the enormous crowds that came in, and they, they are now the, number, they are the leading country on earth in the rapidity with which uh, Christianity is growing. They're the number one growth country on earth in the number of Christians, and they have unrestricted uh, distribution of, of, uh, of Bibles. So, so that's the kind of thing that the, Ch the Chinese will accommodate if they can do it within their own time limit and, and within their own uh, still sovereignty to make their own right. decisions. By the way, Rosalind has been mentioned many times, and I'd just like to say she's with us tonight, and we welcome you to be here. <laughs> she's been such a critical part of everything you've done over yeah. the years. Yeah, it's critical is a, is an accurate expression on some occasions. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, but, but when she criticized, I listen. I'm that's right. <laughs> she should say, you think negotiating with Dung is tough. <laughs> Try one. <laughs> uh, Zach at DePaul University asks, what will China's reaction be if North Korea continues to advance its nuclear program? Well, you know, we criticize China because they don't take an active role in, in our condemnation of the plans, at least in Iran, to develop nuclear weapons. But China has a much more difficult a challenge next door to them uh, with the uh, North Koreans who have already developed the capability to produce and are producing nuclear weapons themselves. Uh, China is uh, very cautious about trying to intercede publicly in the internal affairs of North Korea. 
I've been to North Korea three times on different missions, and I've talked to the North Korean leaders, and I know that they look upon China as their bulwark of protection, both in economic matters and also in, in diplomatic matters, when it gets into an altercation, say, with the United States or with South Korea and so forth. And as you know, the last uh, six-party talks we had uh, with the North Koreans and, and the South Koreans and the Chinese and, 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 the, uh, and the Russians and so forth and the Japanese were, it was in Beijing. That was before President Obama came into office. I would like very much to see the, the six-party talks resume so that we can negotiate with the North Koreans in the presence of the Chinese and others who are interested in the future of North Korea. Uh, and I hope that that will be done in the near future. But I think the North Koreans on many occasions have, have asked me to come over to bring messages from Pyongyang to Washington. I've done that on a few occasions, but that, uh, that avenue is now uh, closed. So I think in the meantime, China uh, has some influence in, in North Korea, I would say, but limited influence, and they don't want to stretch uh, their relationships with North Korea to so severely that it would sever or cause a, a direct rupture of relations. Mm -hmm. This is from Lizzie in Philadelphia. How can the United States and the rest of the world get China to curb its pollution and carbon emissions without appearing hypocritical, given our own history of harming the environment? Interesting way. Well, the last three times I've met with, Xia, with uh, Xi Jinping, I have urged China and the United States to form an alliance uh, on the 15th of January, as you know, as you may know, uh, the, all the nations in the world will have to present a plan to the United Nations on what we will do to curb global warming and to deal with climate change. And the two greatest polluters on Earth right now are China and the United States. The United States represents the industrial world. China still represents the developing world. And if, if we could reach an agreement even when uh, President Obama visits China in, in, in November and come out with a common approach to what we will do about curbing carbon dioxide emissions and others, I think the rest of the world would go along with it. I think India would follow suit. I think Europe, European countries would follow suit and other major uh, important countries like Russia and, and Brazil and South Korea, I mean, South Africa and so forth would go along. So this, this is a key to the resolution of the of a tremendous impending problem with global warming. It's for the United States and China to take a joint session, a joint position on what to do. William at Emory asks, how do we get out of this escalating and dangerous cyber war between the United States and China? I don't know any secrets uh, now since I've left the White House, but uh, <laughs> I, would guess, I would guess that both countries are utilizing the access to the internet and the, and the cyber uh, espionage uh, pretty much on an equal basis. I, I don't know that for sure. I'm just saying that. But I know that the Chinese uh, have been condemned by, by the United States. At least five officials in China have been condemned for penetrating uh, American uh, internet capabilities and, and stealing uh, information that might be beneficial to them uh, at least economically and perhaps even militarily. Uh, I think the thing that can be done is, is to increase our efforts to make uh, our, our cyber capabilities uh, secure from penetration. That's the best way to do it. I don't, don't know if it's possible or not. But uh, since we're equally culpable, in my opinion, uh, I don't know that we can do anything to resolve the issue, except we can 
I, don't, I think even if we worked out an agreement between uh, two presidents, uh, they will not in, indulge anymore in cyber warfare. That would not deter the corporations in China to still have cyber penetration for corporations in America that might give them economic secrets of benefit. So I don't think it'd be possible right. to do away with it altogether. Yeah, well, what President Obama says is that the use of the government to hack into U.S. companies and then to turn that information over to Chinese corporates is where he argues. He says he understands that you know, they, can, yes. they will hack into the Pentagon and others, and we do the same to the Ministry of yes. National Defense. That's the tough issue. Well, you know, I, I would guess that, that some of our national security agency computers are safe. I don't know that for sure. But I think if the corporate world, if you say if the, you know, if, if the um, top corporations in America would do the same, mm -hmm. and, and, we, and our security agencies would share that capability with them, that might be one way to deter mm -hmm. it. But I think that as long as we are vulnerable, we're going to be penetrated. And I would guess that, that Israel and the European countries do the same thing right. to the United States, but yeah. we resent more when, when China does it. Interesting. Sarah from Twitter asks, how much of the tension between the United States and China is a reflection of domestic politics in both countries? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know anything about American domestic politics, but, uh, <laughs> but and, and as you know, there's not any open and free elections in China. That's, that's pretty well evolved during, through the Communist Party over a long period of time, sometimes as long as 10 years. And uh, for a Chinese leader to become president, uh, he or she would have, mainly he would have to prove themselves at the local level and then at a larger city, maybe as a governor of a state and then the manager of a region and then they work themselves up and prove themselves on the way, whereas our, our politics are open. But, but quite often, even between uh, Richard Nixon and John Kennedy, uh, there was a debate about the, the two little islands between Taiwan and the, and the United States, as you remember, between Taiwan and, and the mainland. And, and I think when, when uh, most Americans run for president, they find it convenient to blame uh, economic problems in America on unfair trade policies in China. And so it's natural to do that. And, and as you know, the Congress and, and even the president in the last election uh, condemned some of the uh, Chinese uh, corporations that, that make cell phones and that even make windmills, as you know, as intruding on the security of America. And, and that aggravates uh, Chinese. When I was over in China last time, I had uh, sessions with, uh, with four different uh, university campuses and with one high school group on, on uh, Skype that included a high school class in New York City and also in Canada. And one of the most frequent questions I got was President Obama's recent statement uh, that the Chinese have been free riders for the last 35 years. And, and every household, I think everybody, every student in China knows that President uh, Obama has accused the Chinese of being free riders. That is, that their technological development and, and, and so forth, that military development has, has been uh, based on stealing secrets from the United States. And, and this is a kind of uh, statement that doesn't help on either side. So I think that there's some uh, maybe fault on both sides of, uh, of using the other country as kind of an excuse or target to blame our problems on them.
I hope that will end. And I think the more that we can communicate directly at the presidential level and then have those meetings be harmonious and share that harmony with our own people when they get back home, that's the best way to address it. Mm -hmm. Landon from Louisville asks if ISIS, Ebola, Crimea can be a potential for proactive U.S.-China cooperation, yes. not for an area of tension. Well, I, I, think, I don't think there's any doubt about that. The Chinese have very uh, great uh, investments, diplomatically and economically, in West Europe and West, Western Africa. And, of course, the United States has great interests there, too. And uh, I don't know of, of any disharmony uh, that exists now between China and the United States that this is an issue that must be addressed aggressively. Uh, as far as contributing funding to the $2 billion that has been allocated for this purpose by the United Nations, I think both China and the United States will contribute equally. So that at least is, a, is an indirect way for China and the United States to cooperate. Whether that can be direct cooperation, I don't know, because most of the United States investment in, in West uh, China, in West, in West Africa now on Ebola is through the CDC and also through the three or 4,000 soldiers that President Obama has ordered to go over there without delay since that is, is, is his privilege as Commander-in-Chief. I don't think China can get involved directly in the CDC or the American troops going, but they can mm -hmm. certainly cooperate in helping those individual countries. Now, sometimes it's crises that can provide us with the opportunity for strengthening that relationship. That's right, and both China and the United States will benefit our own people by preventing Ebola from coming to us if we stamp it out in West Africa from a, from a self-interest self point of view. Yeah, absolutely. John in Honolulu, you know, one of your fellow Nobel Peace Prize winners is Liu Xiaobo is in prison in China. Do you believe the United States should become more involved in human rights in China? Well, we have been involved in human rights in China, and, and um, I think that a lot of progress has been made in China in the human rights field. I just mentioned the freedom of religion a few minutes ago is one area. And when I first went to China after we normalized relations, which was in 1981, it was impossible for any Chinese to move from one village to another unless he got permission in advance from the Communist Party. And if, and if, a, if a central factory, say, in the Beijing area wanted workers, they just would send out an order to men in those small villages to come to that factory and work. They didn't have any uh, control over their own movements, and their wives would have to stay back home and, and take care of the family. And also at that time, as you know, there was a one is best, two is most limit on family planning, on, on family sizes. So, so some of those things have been eased a lot in China. There's still a problem with uh, Tibet, and there's still a problem in relationship much less than it has been in the past with Taiwan. Uh, China looks upon Tibet and Taiwan as part of China, and the United States does not disagree with either one of those. But I think when China does deal with the Uyghurs and the Far West, and with t Tibet on the, on the high mountain areas, uh, and Lhasa and, and Rosa and I have been there, uh, that they, they could be perhaps more sensitive to preserving the culture and the religion of those people. Sometimes they're not, but if I question the Chinese leaders about that, they say, oh, we don't interfere with a <clears throat> religion and with culture. But for, for that condemnation to come officially from the President of the United States, I think it just exacerbates an already existing problem without resolving it. Here's our youngest, the youngest 
listener, viewer I've ever seen. Dorian, age eight. Uh oh, these are the ones that are very in difficult. San Francisco says happy belated 90th birthday and asks, when you decided the United States would establish diplomatic relations with China, did you expect that China would develop in the country it is today? No, that's a good question. And no, I don't think Deng Xiaoping either had the slightest idea that China would become increasingly equal to the United States economically uh, in the world. In some measures of economic, economic development, they're already just a little ahead of the United States, but obviously in per capita income per person, they have a long way to go, maybe 15 or 20 more years at the present rate. So I don't think that either Deng Xiaoping or I envisioned how dramatically China would change with freedom of economy. And uh, I don't think the Chinese uh, uh, government has changed all that much as far as the Communist Party is concerned. You might be interested in knowing that shortly after we normalized relations in 1982, Deng Xiaoping ordained uh, through the National People's Congress that uh, totally uh, democratic elections would be held in the, in the little villages in China. And there are about 650,000 of those little villages. And later, he asked the quarter center to come over and monitor that process. And we did that for 12 years. And they are absolutely pure democracies. Everyone in the little villages automatically registered to vote when they reach 18, men and women. And they're expected to vote. And they run for three-year terms. They're what we would call mayor and city councilmen and they elect five persons. And if you want to be reelected after three years, you can run for reelection. And it's a secret ballot. And, uh, and we've witnessed a lot of those examples. The, 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 the key uh, caveat is that the little villages are not part of a communist party system. That's just big cities, what they call townships and counties and provinces. That's a communist party. So the little villages are below and not part of a, of a communist party system. Unfortunately, in the last... Uh, decade or two, uh, there's been some contention or differences of opinion between the little villages who feel like they have control over their own affairs now and the Communist Party members who say, we still have control over the little villages. So if there's a, a claim on property that's, that's controlled by the little villages and the, and the Communist Party leaders won't have a factory there, they can generally prevail. But there's been a lot of altercations, even, even violent altercations throughout China because of this unresolved issue. So we were making good progress toward that, that, and I would say that in the last two or three administrations in China, they've kind of backed off on that trend toward more freedom and, and democracy. Which leads into a question from Connor in Philadelphia, who asks, do you believe that China can continue to function with both a one-party system of government and an expanding market economy? If not, how much longer until they must make a change? I don't want to predict that the uh, Communist Party is going to fall in China. I think that the leaders of the Communist Party will be flexible enough to accommodate uh, demands from their own people in order to keep the Communist Party in charge. That's my belief. Uh, and as I just mentioned in the closing remark on my previous answer, I, I think that perhaps Deng Xiaoping had more flexibility in seeing democracy take hold than some of his successors have. And recently, uh, my impression is that there's been a tightening up of security in China. And I would say that under, that happened under Hu Jintao, the previous 
of President China and also under Xi Jinping. My own personal opinion, uh, and Chinese may differ with me, I think Xi Jinping is probably the most forceful leader that China has had since Deng Xiaoping. And uh, I think he's determined to preserve the uh, paramount nature of the, uh, of the Communist Party system. And I don't see any present prospect of that being changed with any sort of Western-style uh, democracy. And, and you notice from the public opinion poll that I quoted to you earlier that uh, his, his uh, emphasis on the nationalism and sovereignty of China and the, and the worth of the present uh, political and economic system uh, creates doubt about America because America is understood by many Chinese to be trying to restrict China's development economically and politically and militarily and to restrict the progress that's being made in China, which I think is false, but it's a belief that has been engendered in China. So to, for me to predict that the present government of, uh, is going to fail or for Chinese to predict that the American government's going to fail, I think is inappropriate. The, um, when you were president, did you foresee that Korea and Taiwan, which were at that point still authoritarian regimes, would evolve into the democracies that they are today? And is there some parallel to what we see in China? Well, Taiwan had already started in that direction in, in holding elections, but it was still dominated, as you know, by, by the nationalists, yeah. And, and when I was president, um, South Korea was also a, a dictatorship. Right. Uh, President Park was the uh, leader of South Korea when I made my official visit there. And he was quite domineering and, and had all the, the trappings of a dictator. And he was assassinated the last few months of my administration by, I think, Dung, uh, who went in and, and, and killed and, and had uh, Park killed. So that was a, a transfer from one, from one dictatorship to another military leader. And it's been since I left office that uh, South Korea has moved toward uh, democracy. So I would say, no, I did not anticipate right. those changes. And the question really I often wrestle with is the foreseeability of these. You know, I've, since yes. the days working for you, watched these countries yes. evolve into real democracies. And it wasn't, I didn't, I lived in Taiwan. I didn't predict that. I don't, I don't think that anybody anticipated this. Right. But I think we've had a very harmonious relationship, so far as I know, with, with uh, Taiwan. Uh, since the normalization. Yes, I think that has been, you know, that was the most difficult part when you proposed the Taiwan Relations Act. That was yes. extraordinarily controversial in the Congress. It and was. Ultimately, a piece of legislation emerged which was acceptable, was. which was great. Um, CJ in Vermont, I came to the United States eight years ago for my PhD, and I now work for a U.S. company. company. It seems that a lot of U.S. news outlets portray the United States and China as enemies. I believe this portrayal does not accurately reflect how the majority of Chinese people feel about the U.S. or U.S.-China relations. As a result, this creates misunderstanding and mistrust. How can we help more Americans learn about the real China and the hopes and concerns of Chinese people in order to improve mutual trust between our countries? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a great deal of uh, feeling on both sides among the people, I think greatly swayed by the media, uh, that the other side can't be trusted. And uh, that's an area that has to be addressed, I think, foremost by the leaders themselves. 
And uh, as you know, Xi Jinping and President Obama had a very harmonious relationship in Sunnyland, uh, California, in their shirt sleeves and so forth uh, before, and I think uh, good results have come from that. Uh, I think when, when President Obama announced that they were, we were going to increase our involvement in the Pacific Ocean area, that uh, caused some, some consternation and, and doubt in China as well. As a matter of fact, I don't think there was any substance to it because the United States has been deeply involved as a Pacific power for the last 100 years or more. And we have ties of friendship and alliance with many countries in, in uh, the Asian region uh, long before President Obama became president. Look, just look at, uh, look at uh, uh, Australia and New Zealand and, and, and go, go up the coast to Singapore and, and to the Philippines and South Korea and Japan and so forth. We have a, a, a plethora of uh, trade relationships and even military alliances with those countries that preceded President Obama's announcement. And I, I would guess that the recent altercations, uh, breakdown of peace in, between Israel and its neighbors, and the altercation and problem with ISIS in Iraq uh, and in Syria, uh, and even the Ebola crisis in Western Africa, have, have, have changed President uh, Obama's attention from the Western Pacific region more toward the east again. So international events will probably determine that rather than a decision made by president. And what should he do when he visits there November 10th to 12th? Well, I would, Change the rhetoric? Well, I would like, yes, I would like for him to explain to the, American, to the Chinese people what he meant by free riders, because that's a burning <laughs> issue. And I, might think, I think that he might say, I'm not trying to, to write his speeches for him or anything, that would be presumptuous, but, but you know, just explain what he meant by it, not a, deter, not a, not a condemnation of the Chinese people and, and still praise their economic advances that they made on their own initiative and just say that in the future we need to be equal partners and benefit from what's learned in other countries, or something of that kind. And, and uh, he, he can, could make, possibly make a statement that, that he looks upon China and Japan as, as powerful and, 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 and reasonable countries to resolve the differences between them, things of that kind. So I'm not trying to say what he should say, but I think that, uh, that what he says when he gets back home about his relationship with Xi Jinping would be very good if it's positive. And I think they might, to, to take my own long-standing advice, if they could work out something of common interest and commitment on global warming or, or climate change uh, and, and, and present it to the world as an agreement between the two, that would send a very wonderful example or, or image of, of harmony between two great uh, countries that are going to be in the leadership in the world in the decades to come. President Carter, that is a perfect way to end this evening. You have really given us a tour de force. This has been just a wonderfully informative discussion. So I want to thank you for sharing your time and thoughts with us. Your historic decision 35 years ago, as I said, laid the foundation for peace in the Pacific in all of our lifetimes. Your leadership and the work at the Carter Center to strengthen the U.S.-China relationship is an inspiration to all of us. That concludes tonight's program. For those here in the Carter Center, please remain in your seats as President Carter departs the room. Thank you so much, Thank Mr. You, President. It's been a pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center. 
online at cartercenter.org.